This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Why am I talking about Rahner? Well, he's one of the, the pioneers of the theology of death. Up until his time, there was a more or less standardized account of death, which um, basically treated it as a passage from uh, this world to the next, but of little intrinsic interest in itself. But I think it was one of Rahner's many theological achievements is that he explored the meaning of death per se, and not just in relationship to further outcomes. I want, I want to talk about this in terms of uh, distinguishing uh, between an experiential account of death uh, and a formal definition of death. These are not the same thing. I think we're long on the formal definitions and short on the experiential account. Um, an experiential account of death, which we would all like to have in advance notice and warning, <laughs> uh, an, advance, a, a, an experiential account of death would basically tell us what death is like. Uh, what's it like to die? And a formal account, on the other hand, would uh, get at the essence of death. It would tell us, it would define death in terms of uh, its formal defining characteristics, such as the cessation of the life of the body or the separation of soul from body or whatever uh, formal definition you may come up with with death. But it would not by itself be enough to tell us what death is like. Um, Thomas Nagel wrote uh, an influential essay years ago uh, with an intriguing title. The title was, What is it like to be a bat? <laughs> and his answer was, we have, we have, we have no idea. <laughs> uh, the answer, why is it the case that we could have no idea of what it uh, is like to be a bat? Because they have a different, entirely different sensory apparatus than we do. Their experience of the world is radically different, and we could not really have that sensory apparatus to process the world in the way they do without ceasing to be human. So there's really no humanly available answer of what it's like to be a bat. And the same, I think, or at least this is the thesis, the same would be true about dying. There's no humanly available account of what it's like to die uh, because death is, by, by definition, beyond the, an event that happens within the horizon of this world, you see. It's not like something within the world precisely because it ends the world, at least for the person who dies. That's why there can't really be uh, an account of what it is actually like to die. Now, nevertheless, so we, what we're left with is a formal definition but a formal definition can have, if it doesn't give direct experiential insight into what death is, it can be laden with experiential implications. And I think such will be the case with Rahner. But before I go there, I want to say that there are experiential accounts of death that are available to us. I'm thinking now of near-death experiences they purportedly tell us what it's like to die, and in quite a good deal of detail. 
So, for example, you're in the hospital. You've been dragged in because you've had a heart attack or been in an auto accident. All of a sudden, uh, you're in pain and you're on the operating table. And then there's a sense of release and a gradual liberation from the body. You feel yourself leaving the body. And you, you actually ascend a bit. And you turn around and you look down and you see the surgeons working on you, and one of them says to the other, oh, looks like we're going to lose him, you know? Mm -hmm. The other person says, oh, it's too bad. I, he seemed like such a nice young fella, you know? <laughs> and then, uh, so you're watching this unfold. Then, conveniently, your uncle, you leave the room, and your uncle, who's down the road, or down the uh, corridor, three or four rooms down, waiting. You go in, and you see him calling your Aunt Mildred, saying to her, um, you know, I think we're going to lose him, okay? So something like that happens. Well, it doesn't stop there with being able to give an eyewitness account of what's going on in the, in the emergency room. You uh, begin to leave the whole scene. You go through a tunnel, and at the end of the tunnel is this bright, warm, enveloping light that seems to be pure love. It's a tunnel of light. And there's someone there who reviews your life with you, but not in a judgmental way, in a loving way, in an embracing way. Do you remember when you robbed that bank? <laughs> Do not imagine I condemn you for this. This was simply the resolution of unresolved energies in your soul. But now we can put it right. We love you so much, you see. And you remember your divorce? Well, there was really no fault there. Uh, and it goes on like that. It's, it's almost always uniquely consoling. And you're able to ex experience your life in its wholeness and in a reconciling, warm, healing light. This sounds pretty good, you know. And then um, you're in the presence of loved ones, uh, your uncle, your aunt, your parents, all those who meant something to you are somehow there. And then you're happy, you know. You're happy and content in a way you've never been before. And then... Alas, the sad news comes that you must go back into the world and leave this blessed realm and enter into your body again. Why? Because you have a, a work to do that is as yet undone. There is a mission. And so you enter into your body and it hurts like heck. You know, this part of it is bad, but you wake up from this with a renewed sense of mission you realize that love is the only thing that matters in the world. And so you give up your career as a money-grubbing this, that, and the other. And you, and you devote yourself selflessly to the service of your brothers and sisters because love is the only thing that matters. That's death. Is it? I I, I, listen, I'd sign up for that. I would. <laughs> if I thought that was really true. Uh, but it's... Um, I think it's susceptible to these kind of accounts, and they seem to be pretty uniform. There are some bad moments for some people, but mostly it's pretty positive. So what do we make of that? Well, I think that as attractive as all of this sounds, 
there are a couple of theological and basic, more basic philosophical difficulties with the account of near-death experiences. Uh, just to pick the most crude and obvious, what happens in the beginning of this experience? Well, you begin to leave your body, and then you float down the hall, and you see somebody talking on the phone, and you report accurately the conversation, which astounds everyone. Okay, I have a question. How did you manage to see that? Seeing something requires a pair of eyes, doesn't it? You, uh, you can't see without eyes? How do you hear without your ears? Presumably, your eyes with the rest of your body have died. They're not working. That's what it means to be dead. Your eyes aren't working. Your ears aren't working. Your body is kaput. So what happens? Your immaterial body rises from your physical body with all its senses intact and goes and visits another room where he hears and sees all these things. Uh, how do you have sense knowledge without senses? I know that's a crude question, but I, I, I feel obliged to raise it. <laughs> it just doesn't seem plausible to me. Now that, well, there could be an easy answer to it. That, yeah, when you say, uh, how did you see without any eyes? And the answer could be, well, you have to understand that when I say see, I really meant inwardly understood. Okay. In other words, it's a, a metaphorical translation of an ineffable experience. I somehow knew. That's what I really meant to say. I didn't really mean to say I saw it. But if you pay attention to the accounts of these events, no, they mean quite literally they saw it. That's what they mean to say. They saw it. How, I ask. Now, maybe there's a, an answer that makes sense, but I don't know what the answer would be. All right, but that's just on, a, on an epistemological level. How do they know what they claim to know? There's another problem, uh, which is, I th in my view, even more substantial, which is that this interpretation of death basically implies a neoplatonic view of man. You know, That is to say, where is the real person? The real person isn't your body. Your real person is somehow a spirit or a soul that inhabits the body much as the way a ghost might inhabit a machine. See? Oh, okay, so you are a mind or a soul that infuses a body. Is the body your real self? Apparently not. See? Apparently your body isn't yourself. Apparently there's an invisible self within you, which nevertheless has ears and eyes and can see your uncle down the three rooms down in the hospital and tell what he was doing accurately. This seems tremendously difficult to sustain. You know, it's just hard to understand how your real self is attached to, but not really constitutive of yourself. How, how is it that you have a body that isn't really yourself? How is your body just a machine that your soul inhabits? And if it is just that, how is it your soul is so closely aligned with this machine? Why, what is the reason for the relationship? If you are complete as a person without body, if your real self is not bodily, then what on earth is the point of having a body to begin with? You see, 
so those are some of the, I mean, I would like to believe the near-death experiences, and for the record, I have no doubt that they happen. Too many people report them. And it would be gratuitous to assume they're making up the story or want attention or something like that. Too many people who are too honest, who have said the same, given the same basic account, and whatever my absence of explanations for how it's possible, people do seem to report accurately about what happens several rooms down. That seems to be a fact. I don't have an explanation for it, but just because I don't have an explanation doesn't mean it's not real. So I don't know. The real problem I have is the Neoplatonic uh, implications of this view of death, that, that the real self is purely spiritual and only accidentally attached to a body. Now, you see, uh, now there's an even deeper, I mean, uh, aside from the philosophical difficulties of Neoplatonism, there's another difficulty, which is more properly theological. And the theological difficulty, which, remember, is based on accepting revelation. There is no theology without the acceptance of revelation. But accepting revelation, it's hard to see how you square the Neoplatonic near-death experience with a basic description of death as an evil. You see, that's really the problem. Why is death an evil? Socrates didn't think death was an evil. They're handing him hemlock. Uh, you've got to drink this. Did Socrates say, no, I won't do it? No, he said he would do it. Did he say, I'll do it because this is uh, uh, an evil that I deserve? No. He said, I'll do it because I should obey the law, but more importantly, you think you're doing me an injury by giving me hemlock to drink, but it's not really an injury. I live in justice, and no real evil can come to the just man. I am on a path not to punishment and diminution. I am on a path to inner liberation. You are doing me a great favor by putting me to death. See, that's Socrates on this. So death isn't an evil. But for the Christian view, with the, uh, which is non-dualistic, which says that body and soul are related together as form and matter, uh, according to this view, death really is an evil. It, death does us no favors. Death is impenetrable and wicked uh, because it is a sign of the reign of evil. The teaching of the church is unambiguous. Death is an evil. And none of the Neoplatonic or the um, a near-death experience accounts really sufficiently give weight to the fact that death is truly an evil. Now, just a homiletic side note here. Um, sometimes in Catholic homiletics, when you when the priest or the homilist has a natural desire to give comfort and help to the parishioners who are there, you're not there to win theological prizes or to get a, uh, invited to the next Thomistic Institute conference. You're there to offer the word of God and solace to those who are grievously rent asunder by the event of death. And so it's not surprising that you would want to give as positive a turn to death as you can, which is part of the reason why we've moved to white vestments. Are oftentimes people 
will wear white vestments during uh, funeral masses, which is not in itself un, a bad idea. I mean, after all, we die in Christ and also rise with Christ. And then a Christian view which doesn't point to that as our hope is incomplete. So there's nothing wrong with white vestments as a whole. But I think that something can be theologically sound in itself and still be motivated by an incomplete vision. And I think the incomplete vision that is animating this decision is uh, a, uh, a um, underestimating or uh, of the power and ravaging power and, frankly, evil nature of death itself. In other words, an overly optimistic view of these mysteries fails to give death its due. See, there was, I, I've, I've got a good friend, and um, he had a, uh, well, we have a common friend uh, who was uh, a priest and who was a pretty, I mean, in terms of both natural and evangelical grace, uh, he's, well, he seemed to excel in both. He was talented theologically. He was talented uh, personally. Some people are are uh, blessed intellectually, but are just impossible to live with. <laughs> you know, but he was not only very intelligent, but he was easy to live with. He's a nice fellow, you know, and he had an easy grace about him. And he had he was one of those rare people who could both administer things and think. <laughs> I mean, think speculatively, you know, not practically. I and mean, he could do both. He had it all. And he lived many years in, in, uh, with many friends and with much grace. Then something happened to him. What happened to him? Well, he got a progressively degenerative muscular disease. I don't know if it was Lou Gehrig's disease or something else, but it was something in that nature. And the, the fact, the effect of it was that it doomed him to a long, slow, humiliating dying process and then finally death. Death didn't come all at once for him. There was a day-by-day -day diminishment. And that diminishment didn't just attack his body. It attacked his mind, too. I mean, you could see, I could see that um, if death would leave your mind or your personality alone, it, might, it would be more bearable. You could sit in your sedan chair serenely as the, the sisters brought you some cocoa or lemonade in the hot summer afternoon. How are you, Father? Oh, well, my body is diminishing, but my soul is untroubled. <laughs> Have some more lemonade. Oh, thank you, Oh, thank you, sister. As I see the calm twilight descend upon them. Uh, it wasn't like that, you know? Uh, he didn't have his friends gather around for last philosophical dialogues as he gently faded into the good night. No, he became impossible because his, the, the blessing, one of the blessings of his life was, that's, you know, an agreeable personality. Well, he lost that. He became a crab, you know? Uh, he became impossible to relate to, you know. How are you? I'm not all right. What, what, can I bring? No, you know, like that. 
And that, was, that wasn't who he was all his life, but the disease worked in him in such a way that he became kind of unrecognizable. Uh, this can happen to us. Um, there's a more a lighthearted example of the same phenomenon. We had, I had a Dominican brother who was highly esteemed, very prayerful, very holy, uh, very detached from self in service of the other. And again, everything you'd want in a, in a human being. Well, one of these things hit his mind. It was a, a form of dementia. So he lost it, and we have him in one of our nursing homes. Well, this wasn't as bad as what happens to other people, but, a, but this man who had been self-denying and ascetic most of his life started kissing all the nurses. <laughs> Mwah, he would go. Hello, sister, how are you? Come here. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, to have that kind of license in life. <laughs> But 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 well, he wasn't he wasn't to blame. He wasn't any decision of his. His judgment was gone, you know. And, but that's a sign of of the loss of the person, you know. It's a, it's the loss of the person in stages. Anyway, the point is, this friend who died this death uh, had a friend who a priest who knew him all his life and who preached the homily. This homily was about as grim an account of this as you could wish for. I mean, there was no sugarcoating death here. Uh, as I say, he had two quotes that controlled this. Uh, not, I am the bread of life, you, uh, and so forth, or I am the resurrection and the life. No. First quote that he preached on was, call no man happy until he is dead which was basically, you know, this guy had it well, had, had a good life for the first 70 years, and then don't call him happy because the last seven years of his life were a living hell. So if you think you're happy now, don't. <laughs> okay. Call no man happy till his death. And then the other quote that he uh, had uh, to inspire us was uh, not every story has a happy ending. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> well, why did he do that? Um, I think that what I think that this this was I mean this by itself was an incomplete homily. I mean it did not give a full picture of Christian death. It just didn't. But but I can see why he did it. You know. I can see why he did it, because you have to give death its due. And his homily, I think, was, I mean, he wasn't thinking about homiletic principles. He was reacting to the death of his friend. But I think he was saying, do not cheapen what this man went through by premature alleluias. Death is terrible, not fun, not enjoyable, not liberation from the shackles of a body. It's terrible. And we in the church need to say that. One of the ways we used to say that was with black vestments and with the good old dies irae. You know, day of, oh, you know, that, that uplifting number, oh, day of wrath, oh, day of mourning. You know, terrible. I mean, the, the images of judgment that it conjures up are terrifying. And this was what the church gave the faithful for the funeral liturgy. I think, though, that it 
uh, if it doesn't help us with in terms of consolation, it does help us ultimately by taking what we're faced with as human beings seriously at full account. Now, so this is all a line, a long way to lead up to Rahner. I, want, I think you can interpret Rahner's theology of death as an attempt to give death its due, its, its proper weight in a Christian account of things. Rahner has three basic proposals to make in his theology of death. One is uh, that death is an event that concerns man as a whole. Now, Rahner was uh, enough of a scholastic. He never really left his roots in scholasticism, and he never stopped quoting Denzinger. He was a theologian's theologian, you know. He wasn't somebody who found direct inspiration in contemporary works of fiction or music or political movements. He found his inspiration in good old Thomas Aquinas and Denzinger, and of course Immanuel Kant. But there was there was a tough-mindedness about him, and a, and a willingness to engage difficult theological texts on theological terms. He was not afraid of dogma. Okay, so he wants to say that death is an event that concerns man as a whole. He was formed by this scholastic theology, and that means that for all its its a profundissement, as the French would say, for all of its deepening quality, he was still all his life committed to the form-matter distinction. See? Now, you know, some of you are philosophy majors, right? How many are philosophy majors? Enough to be disturbing. Um, <laughs> so that I can't get away with things that I could get along away with if you were all accountants or something. <laughs> but anyway, there is a, a relationship between form and matter in Aristotle. And uh, that relation, uh, to take the simplest example, a table. Uh, you can't have a table without wood or stone, right? The form, the idea, is one thing, but the form doesn't really exist unless it's embedded in matter. See? Um, the form requires matter to exist. Now, not everything. As Rahner would say, angels don't require matter to exist. But uh, a material thing both needs a governing t uh, nature, an idea, which has to be embedded in a concretely existing form. Now, properly speaking, the form is what's most actual in any reality, and it is what gives shape and definition and actual existence to the matter. But nonetheless, form can't really exist concretely unless it's in relationship to matter. Uh, as I say, angels accepted and God accepted, but material beings can't exist without this interrelationship between form and matter. Now, that means that it's not the form alone which gives the reality or makes something to be essentially what it is. Matter only exists because it is formed. And form can concretely exist only in matter. The table needs the wood to be real. If you destroy the wood of the table, you destroy the table. Well, all right, what's the soul? for uh, Catholic scholastic tradition. 
Basically, the soul can be described in terms of the relationship between form and matter. Uh, the soul is the substantial form of the human being. But, and this is important, this substantial form, it's very hard to see how this substantial, let me proceed cautiously here, it's very hard to see how this substantial form can actually exist in independence of the matter that it does inform. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means that when a human being dies, it's the whole human being that dies. If man is a unity, when man dies, and man is in separately form and matter, body and soul, when there is death, it's not just the body that dies, it's the soul along with the body that dies. It's the whole man that dies. Now that poses great problems for the existence of the soul uh, after death. How is it possible? Well, um, Thomas will, base, and following Aristotle, will give a basic answer to that, and the basic answer to that is that the soul, uh, the human soul is a rational soul, and because it's rational, it has the capacity to universalize and because it has the capacity to make to conceive of universals, there is something necessarily immaterial about that. Universals require a certain independence of matter. What is free, uh, what is not tied to sense particulars, uh, but which is uh, simply a, a product of the mind and its act of understanding, this is not composed of material elements. Therefore, it can't dis, uh, decompose. You can only decompose something that is, that is composable, you see. In other words, to, to account for destruction of, of something, you have to see how its parts, its constitutive parts, cease to be in relation with each other. Now, the mind uh, has a necessary independence of matter, and therefore the mind or the soul uh, as a rational principle, would not die when the whole person dies. Now, this is a puzzling thing, uh, and you can see how these realities are in tension with each other. The most spontaneous inclination for us to be, uh, would be to say, if man is truly form matter by a soul body, then if he's a totality, when death comes, it comes to the whole man, and the whole man dies. That would mean annihilation. It doesn't because of the intellectual quality of the soul. But this is what is peculiar. What is peculiar is that something exists of the whole man, the whole woman. There is not a total annihilation. Something still persists. But what persists is not a human being. Uh, the man dies, the woman dies. It's not like the whole person is in the soul, at which goes to heaven or hell. The whole person has been uh, has undergone death. Now that is, uh, I think, a disturbing thought. But Saint Thomas, Saint Thomas, uh, does he mean this? Well, you can see that he does. And, and an incidental remark he makes on the the necessity of prayer. He says, is it necessary for us to pray? Uh, what about to the saints? They, um, do we pray to the saints? And he says, yes, we do. 
uh, for the usual reasons. It's, necess it's great to ask other people's intercession on our behalf. If our prayers count, so all the more do our prayers in union with the prayers of the saints count. Well, the objection to this is raised. Yeah, but the, the saints, so-called, have undergone death and they're not people anymore. And Aquinas doesn't say in reply, oh, no, they're surely people. He doesn't say that. What he says is, it is still fitting to pray for what was formerly known as Peter. <laughs> really, uh, you don't really say pray to St. Peter as a human being. You pray to that which exists now, which once was St. Peter. Isn't that kind of chilling? Uh, but, he, uh, but he means it. Um, okay. To destroy this unity of soul and body basically is to destroy man himself. Now, this end for Rahner has two different senses or meanings. The first is termination, and the second is fulfillment. Peter the Apostle was born on such and such a date, and he died on such and such a date. As I said, Aquinas on prayer says, we do not properly speaking pray to Peter, but to that which was formerly known as Peter. Since man is a historic, that so Peter as man came to an end. But the, Peter is, the reality that Peter had uh, came to an end and therefore to a termination in his execution, see? Um, and this terminated Peter's, not only his physical existence, but his state of pilgrimage. See, a human life is a story, a story of a, story of a journey. Uh, Peter was born on such a day, died on such a day. His life had a trajectory. It had a beginning, and it had an end, and the end has the character of a finish, a period, a stop piece, see, to the end of the story. But on another level, Peter's death is a consummation, or, a, or as Rahner will later say, a final act of freedom. See, because not only does his life come to an end in the sense of a temporal termination, his life comes to an end because his life had a point, a meaning, and this meaning is achieved in the very act of his dying. So Peter, in, a, in this way, only becomes Peter the moment he's crucified upside down and passes from this world. This is the summation of his discipleship and his, as uh, Rahner would say, the final act of his freedom. Now, Man is both nature and person. Man is a, a person as well as a nature, and as intelligent as free and free, he is spirit, and he is not as such mortal. Rahner thinks that death is a personal act as well as a, an impersonal act inevitable result of, of biological and laws of physics. Uh, but death is a personal event as well as a biological event. Death is the free, Rahner says, consummation of a person's life. And as such, death is the person's ultimate self-definition. 
consummatum est, says Jesus on the cross. It is finished. Uh, in a much lower key, every human being, as they come to the moment of their death, is saying consummatum est. I am what I am. I meant what I meant. I meant what I said. This is my life. Deal with it, you know. <laughs> As he says that to himself and to God and to everybody else, there is a self-definition involved in the act of dying. What about how much of this is knowable to us? Well, we can measure pulse physically. We can measure brain activity. Uh, we can um, tell a lot about death on a physiological level. We can see this. We can experience this. But this is experienced in veiledness or hiddenness. What's publicly available to everybody who sees it is a biological uh, act, a biolog uh, an act where something that is biological turns into something non-biological. What you see on a philosophical level is substantial change, one kind of entity becoming another kind of entity. What was the living Peter is now a mixture of chemicals and, and uh, uh, previously organic matter. The body is not even really a body anymore. What you've witnessed on a natural level is the cessation of brain activity. What you've witnessed on a philosophical level is substantial change where one kind of being becomes another kind of being. What you've uncovered on the spiritual level, that is what is veiled. That is what is hidden. Because there, no, there is no way any one of us have direct access to another person's state of freedom. I can uh, talk to you, get to know you, uh, learn more about you, and maybe be able to infer as a reasonable guess something about the state of your mind. So ministers of the church have this problem every time they celebrate a marriage. You know, um, the, the, the couple come, they say uh, they are in love and they are willing and desirous to live in the fullness of Catholic truth and so on and so forth. All right. Do you believe them? Well, you have no reason not to believe them. Um, you take their word for it. Can you know for sure about their real intent? Well, the fact of annulment, the fact that many people have gone to the church and said, when I thought I was free to marry, I really wasn't. When I thought I meant what I, I thought I meant what I said in my vows, but I found that deep down I didn't, you know, or I was thought I could make a marriage, but I know now I was too deeply immature to make that. Um, okay. Is that possible? Sure. Can the church make that prudential judgment? Sure. But just as the church couldn't then really know for sure what was going on in somebody's mind and heart then, so they can't even know now for sure what was going on in the mind and heart. And it could be that many people who've gotten annulments are kidding themselves, you know. It's, it's a, a, a perilous situation. But anyway, we don't have direct access to someone's mind and heart we only have inferential access. Um, so if the person's body in this life uh, reveals and veils who they are, 
So death as a physical event uh, reveals nature coming to an end in us, but it conceals the decisive element of death, which is our definitive uh, disposition of the self and a a final act of freedom. Death is veiled. Its inner significance, its inner meaning, in the particular case, is veiled to us. Now, this is the reason why death can be on the level of nature an occasion for death as an act of salvation or an act of damnation, an act of uh, forgiveness or an act of judgment. Uh, We can't see it from this side of the the equation. But death, uh, for Rahner, um, it's important to notice or to say that death looks the same to us in its, in its bodily dimension, but that, and we go from that to the conclusion that death is the same essentially for all men with different ex- consequences, same of that, different consequences according to different lives. Rahner wants to take this one step further and to say that it's uh, not the same event. Death for someone, let's say a sinner, death for a sinner who is freely alienated from God is an essentially different event than the death that a believer in Christ dies in. See, Uh, death is not the same. Death is deadly to the sinner. Death, uh, as he will say, uh, for the Christian who dies in faith is a death in the Lord. And those are not the same events. Okay, essentially different. As the whole person, both body and soul, dies, uh, this death differs radically according to whether the death died is death in the sinner in his free rejection of God or is rather the death of the believer uh, by participating in the death of Christ. Now I want to move on. Uh, we've been I've been trying to give death its due, and I one uh, I've so far painted an incomplete picture according to Death and Rahner. Death must be linked to sin in a Christian account of these things. Um, this is the I think death and its linkage to sin, I think forms the intuition behind the need to represent death as eerie and unnatural and as horrific. Death, you know, could be seen as a simple annihilation. We're material beings and when we come to an end, uh, physically we simply come to an end, full stop. You know, and that conclusion would lead us to conclude that there is no further harm that can come to the dead. When you've died, you won't even know you're dead, you know? Um, Awareness of death as a horror ceases uh, at death and can only be operative by way of anticipation while you are still alive. Death isn't an evil to a person because there's no person left for it to be an evil for. See, it's no evil. There's nobody there. Now that could be, that would make it rational to fear death as a process, but not rational to fear death as, a, uh, as an event. See, 
With death, your troubles are over because you are over. But does that console us? No. Even the materialist unbeliever is still horrified by death, and it's hard to explain why he would be. See, death could be seen, as we've seen earlier, if you've got the near-death neoplatonic point of view, death could be seen and experienced as a liberation, but something which is uh, essentially good and a liberation, that something essentially good would be universally recognized as horror, uh, is odd, don't you think? Uh, it could, you could explain that simply by fear of the unknown, but we're able to face all kinds of unknown situations with equanimity or, or with mustard courage, you know. Just because we don't know what's on the other side, if we have sufficient rational foundations and are know that death is either a liberation or simple annihilation, we wouldn't be as afraid of it or horrified by it as we in fact are. No, there has to be an intuition that death is unnatural as well as uh, well, uh, frightening because unnatural. Death, and the thing that accounts for, this is my intuition, all right? Uh, my intuition is that the reason there is a residual horror of death uh, beyond our rationalizations, beyond the reach of our rationalizations, is that, in fact, death is linked to sin. Death is linked to sin. Death, there is a connection between death and sin, and the horror of death really is borrowing its punch or its energy from what sin really is and what sin really means. Uh, the reason death is horrifying in the way it is is because, not just because it means the cessation of our physical existence, but because it, it represents a fissure, an ontological fissure between us and God and puts us in a state of radical guilt. Our horror remains, and so death as horror is death as the fruit of sin. I want to talk for a moment between the linkage between sin and the devil, because the tra tradition is unanimous that sin is linked to Satan. There are a number, this may be, I may skip over this more quickly. How many of you have had a course on angelology? Oh, the, okay, good. That means I can get away with more. Um, first of all, uh, we, there's an, uh, the common teaching has been that angels are pure spirit and as such have no relationship to matter. I think this is false. Uh, angels are, in fact, uh, Thomas and Aristotle thought there were unmoved movers, that there were spiritual causes of motion in the universe that you needed to account for. All right. Um, well, angels, if that's so, uh, these, uh, their activity as moving causes didn't, wasn't assigned to them by God as an afterthought. They were created uh, for the purpose of, of involvement in the world. Okay? So it's part of their, in, their, they're born with inbuilt knowledge and so on. They're also created with an inbuilt mission in relationship to the physical universe. That's the first point. They are created in relationship to the world, not in absolute independence of it. Uh, that means that the perfection of angelic spirits is tied to the perfection of the world. That the world coming to its point is somehow dependent upon angelic intervention. 
Now, it's the, so that uh, I don't think angels can help this. They, there's an old, there's a, a, I would classify it for lack of, lack of a better word, uh, a good theological guess that the angels, when they were created, were not only given an assignment to the physical world, they were put in relationship with the mystery of the incarnation, Christ taking flesh. And the story is that God showed the angels the Christ in the future and said, adore this, adore this person. And they said, what? A thing that burps? You want me to adore a creature that burps? You've got to be kidding. You are kidding, are you not? No, no, I am not, says the Lord. Um, I won't do it, says Satan. Sayonara, says God. <laughs> you know, there was a once and for all decision to reject, not only, uh, but to reject their assignment to matter into the cosmos, and in particular to reject their assignment to that part of matter which would become the incarnate Son of God, see? But anyway, the angels reject all of this. Now, the point is, uh, that being said, the angels still, by virtue of their being, have a necessary relationship uh, to the perfection of the world, but the mode of their relationship to the world and its perfection is going to correspond to the mode of their relationship to their own perfection. Does that make sense? That they will perfect the world in the same way that they perfect themselves. How do they perfect themselves? Gracelessly, autonomously, see, without reference to grace, without reference to God. They, uh, non serviam, says, say the angelic evil ones. Uh, that means not only uh, will they not serve God, they will not serve their appointed purpose in creation. In particular, they will not serve to further the ministry of the Christ. They will not submit to him. So they do will the perfection of the world, but in a graceless mode, which translates into a fully autonomous mode. They will pursue the perfection of the world within the limits of the world and will try to block in whatever way they can the use of the world by God for his further purposes of glory. See, autonomous perfection is the watchword of the angelic spirits. Now this is both termination and consummation. Um, the angels will the consummation of the world in autonomous perfection. We will not, and so to, to just to tie this up with something that was said earlier, um, uh, in this morning's session, someone asked about acts of charity that are uh, autonomous, that are done uh, not out of love of God, but simply for the sake of the works themselves. All right. Um, there is a way in which moral goodness pursued in the spirit of radical autonomy turns demonic. Okay, the, in other words, moral perfection pursued in a way that is radically autonomous and in that sense secular inevitably turns demonic. I'm thinking of the, I've just been reading this book by Simon, uh, I forget his last name, Schmaus or something like that. Uh, anyway, it's about, it's called Citizens and it's the, an account of the French Revolution and it's quite horrifying in its reading. Now, you have Robespierre, standing before uh, uh, the French National Assembly, 
I call you all to virtue, he says. You know, he, call, he wants to embody virtue. He thinks that it's essential for there to be perfect virtue in the pursuit of this nation, this new nation. And, of course, the, law, the implication of this serving of virtue was the terror. I mean, people, men, thousands of people were beheaded in the name of this virtue. This is what happens when human beings claim autonomy over their form of their own goodness, you see. Well, that's what I mean. There is a natural perfection of human life in communion, but there is a natural uh, autonomy that needs to be transcended in this goodness. Good Moral goodness is moral goodness, but it needs to transcend itself or it turns demonic. And this is some of, I think, this again is, if that's parenthetical, this is even more parenthetical. But... I mean, I, I, when I listen to folk music from the 60s, I sometimes get a whiff of that. You know, we will form the beloved community, but without Christ. How many years must a man look out before he can see the sky? I'll stop there. <laughs> but uh, if any of you remember that, uh, I mean, it, it, is it, is what's objectionable about that? It's good, but it's autonomous. You see, and it's going to lead to weird places, which which it did. You see, all right, enough of that. So the the, the angelic relationship to the world is both consummation in autonomy and termination, and the termination side of it means that the devil wills death. He wants the perfection of the world in proud autonomy from God, but he wants that proud autonomy from God to result in the death and destruction of everything including human beings, especially human beings, see. So that's so that the devil, as a spiritual principle, introduces death into the world and introduced it to human beings. For human beings, death is traced to original sin. See, death was not, despite its natural qualities, as I've referred to earlier, uh, it was not inevitable because we were created in a state of original justice. Original justice is a state of union with God through grace that transfigured man, made the um, uh, body of man subject to the mind of man and the mind of man subject to the wisdom and will of God. In that condition, under those circumstances, human beings were free from death and could have continued in a deathless mode. A different form of the consummation of their life would have occurred had there been no original sin. But the event of original sin introduced a fissure between God and man, and uh, so death then uh, becomes the sign, seal, and covenant, mark of the covenant between man and death. If we want to see, we're right to be afraid of death because, you see, theologically speaking, not biologically speaking, but theologically speaking, death is guilt made visible. If you want to know what death is, think of it as making visible and manifesting uh, uh, the mystery of guilt, of estrangement from God. Uh, the, the question was raised earlier uh, today about the, volunteer, the, 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 uh, the, the quality of Christ's death, was it really necessary for Christ to die? Aquinas says it wasn't, that any act of Christ would have been enough for our salvation because of the infinite worth of his person. True, but what is the most appropriate way for him to 
make satisfaction for our sins, by undergoing the whole radical experience of fissure, the consequences of fissure that we endure. And of course, he does this as termination of his bodily life. He never takes it up again in quite the same way. When he appears in his resurrection, he's transfigured. So his mortal earthly life comes to a definitive end. Uh, and so there's termination, but there's also consummation. Because in his death, he says, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. He surrenders himself into the hands of his father, renounces autonomy, and thus brings physical creation, which is represented in his own body, to submission to the father, setting the stage for liberation. Okay? So anyway, this is why this all has been Rahner on uh, giving death its due. I hope we've managed to do that. Thank you very much. We have time for a couple questions, and if you could oh, repeat oh. the question, if you don't mind. Oh, yes, okay. Oh, yes, go ahead. Yes? Um, you mentioned that if we had remained in the state of original justice, if original sin had not occurred, there would be a different sort of confirmation of human life. What would that have looked like? Uh, the question was, what would have uh, death looked like uh, without original sin? The answer is, I don't know. Uh, but I can give you formal qualities of it that would have been consummation without dissolution. Uh, closest, uh, I think, would be the description of St. Paul where he said uh, of believers who are alive when the Lord comes, you know, we sh uh, what is mortal shall be embraced by life, not through the destruction of the body, but through the completion of the body in a supernatural mode which exceeds our imagination and therefore our powers to explain. Or uh, It's a faith statement, and, uh, and we can know what it... it, we, it there's a difference between modus significati. Um, what is that? Uh, any, there's a difference between knowing that something is true and knowing how it's true. In faith, we know that it's true, but we don't know how it's true. What would... Uh, uh, perfection, moving from the perfection of this world to the perfection of the heavenly kingdom looked like without the uh, dissolution of the body? I don't know. It just would have been without the dissolution of the body and experienced as completion and not defeat. Yes? Um, so you know how there's many saints who like, had infinite bodies? So how can you console this with the notion of death itself? Because like St. Augustine talks about how there's the first resurrection, like Jesus says, uh, first resurrection not pass away until you see the first resurrection. Um, but then also there's the second resurrection. So would it point more towards the fact that we're already resurrected in Christ's body um, right now, or would it point towards the resurrection in the future, or both? Or like, how would it cons like, console? I have an answer to that. Uh, <laughs> but Or at least a, a beginning of an answer to that, but it'll have to wait for the... Oh, I'm sorry. The question was, what has all this got to do with incorrupt bodies and second resurrections and a lot of scriptural data that implies that death is uh, susceptible of... of um... Actually, I lost the thread. <laughs> yeah, it was a long question. Um, but just like, how does what, what, everything that you talked about like combine with the fact that, that saints... Okay, I'm going to get to that uh, this afternoon when I talk about Lazarus. There's an interesting thing about Lazarus, uh, and that is that he didn't stink. You know, they rolled back the stone, and he did not, and there was no odor. 
which means that the process of death was somehow interrupted. And I want to argue that I'm going to suggest in my next talk that the separated soul is in an unnatural state. We have to explain its survival, and I think we can do that by pointing to an act of God uh, uh, which interrupts the natural process of death um, and puts these souls in a temporary relationship to the glorified body of Christ, giving them existence, uh, but not full human form until the end. Yes, go. So uh, I guess your point about saying, praying to St. Peter kind of seems to uh, undermine your metaphysical reason for rejecting like these like, death experiences, because you seem to claim that if these experiences were, uh, were true, then I see my body yeah, I don't. I I don't exist anymore. So how could I see? That's body? right. That's one of the reasons why uh, I don't really know wh quite what to make of near death experiences. They're, they're, uh, so uh, I think, but I think you're right. They are in tension with each other. Uh, the theological claims I've been advancing and the near death experiences. Near death experiences support a neoplatonic account of the human person. Well, I was going to suggest that that doesn't have to be the case. If you could like, understand that I see, when I say I see my body, I mean the thing formerly known as me sees my body in the same way that the thing... That oh, I know. Oh, but, oh, but I see what you mean. All right, yeah. But the problem I had there was on a, on a more mundane level. Yeah. Uh, how do you see without eyes? Well, now, now, because I thought you said there's an epistemological problem, which is the, what you're just referring to, and also the metaphysical problem which was the, the, the unity of the self. Yeah. So I'm suggesting an answer to the metaphysical problem, uh, not about like, how do I perceive without eyes. But, okay, and the answer to the metaphysical problem it was is... just that when I say that I see my body, I mean the thing formerly known as... Oh, I see, the thing... Perceives my, the, my body. the musician formerly known as Prince. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> In the same way that we pray to the, to the being formerly known as like, Peter. Okay. Well, maybe that's maybe that's the answer. I, I, I'll have to give that some thought. That's that's an interesting suggestion. Yes, ma'am. Since death entered the world through sin, do you believe that the immaculately conceived Mary died? What? Oh, I'm sorry. The question was, did Mary die? Well, the immaculate Mary was free from original sin, so does that imply that she didn't die? And I think the answer would be. I, I, I have a, a, a problem I can't resolve at the moment. On the one hand, uh, she should have died because she was um, uh, subject to the consequences. Of, well, she should have died because she's descended from Adam. She, uh, so, um, on the other hand, uh, she was free from the consequences of original sin, which means that she was free. I know what it is. I know what it is. Jesus died. Here's what I want to say. The problem uh, that the deathlessness of the Blessed Virgin poses is that Jesus died, and if the Master died, so should everyone who follows the Master die in imitation of his death, right? That's the problem. If Jesus died, who was Mary to escape it? As great as she is, she's the mother of the Lord. Her identity is in relationship to him. So if he died, what about her? The other argument, though, is that she uh, was free from original sin, therefore the consequences of original sin. Uh, however, I, here's how I would answer it. The, the, she died. I would say that Mary, in fact, did die 
at the foot of the cross? Uh, the answer there is she gave birth. She died in childbirth. That's, uh, that's what I would say. Mary died in childbirth, giving birth to John the disciple and the disciples who would follow. See, uh, son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. This couldn't have been easy for Mary to hear. Uh, I'm giving up my relationship with the Lord of life. But on the other hand, there's this fisherman who's pretty, <laughs> who's pretty good, and he's beardless and inoffensive, and he's got a speculative bent. And <laughs> all in all, it's not a bad exchange. Well, no, this would render her, rend her heart, you know? So when she did not have pain in giving birth, which is also a consequence of original sin, she did have pain in giving birth to the church. So by analogy, she did not die in a normal way, uh, but she nevertheless did die. She did not die normally, but she died. I would, uh, that would be my formal answer. Now, what is that actually like? I do not know. Thank you, Father. Father, can I stick this somewhere? I'm going sure. to record you for all posterity. Okay. <laughs> well, that's what's fearful about these events, you know? When I go before the Lord, I say, Do you remember this Comiscuit conference you gave? It'll be peace evidence piece evidence number one for the uh, prosecution <laughs> uh, or or, or for the defense we'll see and uh, it'll be interesting to see if it makes a final appearance in the final edited version <laughs> i think it will i think it will <laughs>